Well, this morning, open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading all the way to verse 29. Abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 9, versículos 1 a 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and just open up your, your phone's browser app. You can type in Mark 9. We'll be reading from the ESV version in English this morning, and then I'll do the rest. We even have Bibles under the chairs in the center aisle if you didn't bring one with you. And if this is your first time reading the Bible, or even your first time in a while, know that you're in good company. This is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible, because we're all learning. We're all aiming to, to, to dig deeper into our understanding of what God's Word says. None of us have arrived. Last week, in Mark chapter 8, we heard the answer, the most indirect answer we could, or the most direct answer we could receive to the question, who is Jesus? And who is Jesus is the, the burden of the Gospel of Mark. It's the question that Mark is answering and that has thus far been answered indirectly by teaching and miracles, by displays of power by Jesus. And last week, life's most important question, your most important question in every situation, who is Jesus, was answered directly and plainly by Peter who said, who do I say you are? You're the Christ. Yet following that confession, Jesus surprisingly said, you're right, but the Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer. And he followed that up by saying that anybody who would follow me must suffer likewise, must take up their cross and deny themselves and follow me. In short, as, as, as the disciples' eyes were unblinded, following on the heels of the beginning of chapter 8, the progressive healing where, where the where eyes were slowly opened to, to see more and more clearly. Last week, eyes were opened for the first time and then slowly unblinded more and more to see the shape of the cross. To see the shape of the cross that dominates the perspective of who the Messiah is and dominates the perspective of what the Christian life is. And today, and in every passage from here on out till the end of Mark, our eyes are opened more and more and more. This, this idea of progressive sight progresses further and further along. And what was blurry becomes more clear. And, and we begin to see not only the shape of the cross, but the contours of the cross. In other words, we see with greater definition exactly how the cross shapes the work of Christ and shapes the Christian life. The more clarity we see Jesus with the eyes of faith, the more clearly we see the contours of the cross. The more clearly we see Jesus with the eyes of faith, the more clearly we see the contours of the cross. Both, both as it defines his ministry and as it defines our lives as Christians. So, listen closely. Here we go. Let's, let's look at the contours of the cross as our eyes are further opened. Beginning Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he, being Jesus, said to them, being the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, 
it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribe say Elijah must come? And he said to them, does first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Oh, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone for the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Just said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but... This is God's word. Would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, open up your word to us. Open our eyes. Every Sunday we ask you would open our eyes to your word, but not just your word, what you have said, but the revelation of who you are in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, shine into our hearts out of the darkness that we might see him and be amazed and cling to him evermore. We ask this in his name. Amen. As Christians living in Orange County in 2023, we run a risk, a a risk that I as a pastor am am constantly on guard against, a risk that I'm constantly concerned about, a risk that threatens to dilute who we are as a church and 
and erode the meaningfulness of our worship in all of life before God. What is this risk? It's the risk of buying into what Francis Schaeffer called semantic mysticism. Which I love that term. It's a term that, that means words that sound big and important but are devoid of substance. A more contemporary way of describing semantic mysticism is buzzwords. The risk of buying into buzzwords. We constantly run the risk of, launch, or, or, or of latching onto terms that are trendy, that, that, that earn the seal of social approval of those around us without ever bringing clear definition or, or seeking clear understanding of what those terms mean. And one of those terms is gospel centrality. We're a gospel-centered church. I'm a gospel-centered person. I want to live a gospel-centered life. I want to read gospel-centered books and preach gospel-centered sermons. Another way of saying that the shape of the cross shapes the Christian life is, is that the Christian life is fundamentally gospel-centered because the gospel is the message of the cross of Christ. And if the cross shapes the Christian life, then it's synonymous to say that the Christian life is gospel-centered. Christian life is cross-shaped. The Christian life is gospel-centered. And what church and what professing Christian nowadays would say that they're not gospel-centered? Right? But I want us as a church and us as individuals to, to move beyond a, a, a buzzy label that earns the seal of approval of those around us. Move beyond that and toward living lives that are truly shaped by the cross. Lives that are truly gospel-centered as God's Word would define that term if we were to ask God for a definition. If we were to ask Jesus for a definition. And this is what Jesus does here in the latter part of Mark. He, he defines for us the contours of of the cross as the cross shape, takes shape before us so that we, we might accurately understand what a gospel-centered life looks like. So, let's together seek to learn and understand what Jesus teaches his disciples and us about what a cross-shaped life really looks like, what a gospel-centered life really looks like. That, that really is our journey from here to the end of the book of Mark learning that what what is cross-shaped christianity and today we we come across two stories two two contours revealed that allow us to see the shape of the cross with greater clarity the two contours which will serve as the two points of this message today are, are two things that we see first is see ultimate glory in the shape of cross we see ultimate glory as as our eyes are unblinded we we see ultimate and consummate glory as a contour of the shape of the cross and the second thing that we see is faith as the continuous response to the cross so so as we look at the the contours taking shape in the cross we we see faith as the continuous response and we see ultimate glory adding edges and outlines to the shape of the cross Let, let's let's dive into this text to see exactly what i mean and and how we see this take shape first points <coughs> ultimate glory you remember R.C. Sproul, when he was alive, he would teach his preaching students that in every chapter, for the drama. We said this over and over throughout the series, but in Mark, goodness gracious, once again, we don't have to look very hard to find the drama. These two stories, the, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mountain, followed by the faithlessness of his disciples in the attempt to exercise a demon from a small boy down the mountain. And even in, in 
that short description of these two scenes, you might hear echoes of something that happened way back, thousands of years before this incident at Mount Sinai. And this is, this, this passage does carry echoes of when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive direct revelation from God himself and then went down the mountain to encounter what? The faithlessness of God's people. And Mark intends for you to hear those echoes. So bear that in mind as you listen to this story, as you read this passage. Exodus 19 through 34 is sort of embedded within Mark chapter 9. And the drama within this is thick in its own right. The first of these two stories opens up with verse 1. Verse 1, this, ex- this expectant, stunning prediction from Jesus that we actually saw last week at the end of last week's sermon, where Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does Jesus mean by this? What's not as important is what they will see. Scholars have argued about what it is they will see, what the coming of the kingdom is. And I have a pretty good guess at that, but we're going to get there in just a moment. What's most important is that he's telling them, you will see. Be on the lookout. Because before you die, you're going to see. And so six days after verse 1, he takes his, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up a mountain, and, and verses 3 and 4, he shows them his glory alongside, and, and Mark presents this really plainly, right? Alongside both Moses and Elijah. And in this moment, the disciples' eyes are open to see something they'd never seen before. This is the story of the transfiguration. One of the most extraordinary moments in all of history. But it's also an incredibly misunderstood story in the Bible. So to rightly understand what's going on here, we actually have to look at Peter's misunderstanding. Because Peter looked at what was going on, and he didn't get it. So in order for us to get it, we have to look at Peter not getting it. And here's... Here's the thing. Moses, Moses and Elijah, they're standing next to, to Jesus. And Jesus is blindingly bright, revealing the very glory of God. But Moses and Elijah appear next to him, and they're talking to him. Now, why do Moses and Elijah come and stand next to Jesus at the revealing of the glory of God here? Some have said, well, because one represents the law, one represents the prophets. I'm not sure that's the case. I think the reason Moses and Elijah appear is because both of them prophesied about the coming Messiah. Also, both of them longed to and asked God to show them his own glory. So what is happening right now is is the, the fulfillment of of what both of them had longed for and prophesied about during their own actual lives, it's now come actual fulfillment. And this is just, this is magnificent. Here was this very Messiah they'd prophesied about revealing the brilliant glory of God that they longed to see. And Peter concluded in his mind, This is what Jesus was talking about six days ago. This is what we see. This is the revelation of the kingdom of God. And and so what does Peter do? And again, we have to be so careful about judging the disciples for their their foolish responses because you and I would likely do no better than any of them. But Peter wasn't asked a question. He wasn't invited to speak. Nothing demanded that he say anything. What he should have said was nothing. Was nothing. But, but instead, in terror, he says, 
Hey, teacher, it's good that we're here. He says, ah, I, I see, I, I see, Lord. I, I see why you brought us. <laughs> I'm the right person for this job. And I mean, I, you brought me up here because I have, I have something to offer in this situation that would otherwise be lacking. So, Lord, it's good, it's good that we're here. And what did Peter conclude that his presence was so necessary for? Well, because otherwise, if you weren't present, they, they, there'd be nobody to make three tents. Now, tent or tabernacle is, is a word that is found all throughout the Old Testament. The tabernacle is where the presence of the glory of the Lord dwelt among his people. So, so Peter thinks, here's the glory of God. Let's set up shop. Let, let, let's put a rubber stamp on this thing. Let, let's do this. Let's make this thing permanent. But Peter had made a grave error because on one hand, he was inadvertently placing Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. He said, hey, let's make a tent for you and for you and for you. Okay, guys? And, and who, I mean, my goodness, who wouldn't be absolutely astounded and amazed at the appearance of two dead heroes of the Hebrew faith? So, so Peter goes, well, let's make a tent for all three of you guys, which in itself was completely missing it. But much more significantly, he'd concluded that this was the ultimate revelation of the glory of God in Jesus the Messiah. He concluded this was the pinnacle. Jesus the Messiah had come to earth to, to, to rescue his people, to reveal God in himself, and here it is! Let's go conquer Rome. Let's set up tents and let's go conquer Rome. This is awesome. But to his chagrin, the voice of God suddenly boomed from the cloud. And this, this harkens back to Exodus. Because God descended in a cloud upon Sinai and spoke with Moses. So a cloud descends upon this mountain and God speaks from it. And he says, this is my beloved son. <laughs> Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. Listen. See. In this scenario, you are intended to observe and be amazed and shut your mouth. Because something is happening here that is beyond your current ability to comprehend. But how often in our own lives, when, when we should simply stop and listen and see and understand, do we open our mouths? And, and this, is, this, is, this is application for me, maybe more than anybody else in this room. I open my mouth all the time. Almost everything I do in my life involves speaking in some way. But there's so many moments in the Christian life when Speaking is not even the first or the second or the third most appropriate response. Listen. How often, in, in light of other people's scenarios and trials and circumstances, do we try to, to, to sort of frame a narrative over it? This is happening to you because, or, or well, God is doing this in your life, or, well, you, you should do this in response, and we offer our opinions and, and our interpretations of scenarios we say like Peter, Lord, thank you for bringing me into this situation. I'm the right person for this job. I've got the right opinion. I've got the right advice and counsel. I've got the right narrative and understanding to be able to sort of wrap this thing up. It's good, because, it's good that I'm here because I, I have the necessary counsel. Or it's good that you're going through this because God is doing this. And you're just guessing. We think we understand, so we impulsively explain and give our perspective and opinion based out of our own understanding. And that's the key here, is when, we're, when we do it out of our own understanding and our own opinion, 
Peter thought he understood. But as soon as this apparently, as soon as this glorious, apparently permanent situation started, it abruptly ended. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah were gone. And Jesus, back in, in purely human form, was standing next to them. And not only did it abruptly end, but, but Jesus then tells them, hey, listen, don't tell anybody about this. Why? He says, don't tell anybody about this until I've risen from the dead. And once again, they just don't get it in response. See, ancient Israelites, they, they had no problem with the resurrection. They all, they all believed in a final resurrection, but but he was talking about an individual resurrection. This didn't cohere with their, their, their doctrine of resurrection, and they just sort of scratched their head and said, don't tell anyone about this until you've raised from the dead. What? Why not? See, the reason why Jesus says don't tell anybody about this is because the glory of the Messiah would not be fully revealed, would not be ultimately revealed, would not be summarily and completely and gloriously revealed until he hung on a cross to take away the sin of the world and those who believed him and rise again on the third day to vindicate the work that he'd accomplished on that cross. Because of this revelation, this revelation on the mountain, that revelation, the transfiguration, was not the revelation of his full glory, of his complete glory. Of, this was not the revelation of ultimate glory. It was a glimpse of what was yet to come. That's what God was doing here. He was offering a glimpse. Offering a glimpse of the coming of the kingdom they would see after the resurrection. That's the coming of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about when he says, you will not die before you see that. But they have no reference for that. It would be the revelation of his glory through his cross that he wanted to be proclaimed until the end of the age. But not yet, because the cross hadn't happened and nobody had a reference for it. Indeed, that is the message of the Messiah that he wanted them to proclaim is the message of the cross. The messianic message was incomplete apart from the cross. That's why Jesus continually commanded secrecy. Because until the cross, everybody had misunderstandings of who the Messiah was. They didn't see the shape of the cross yet. The cross is the full revelation of the glory of God and Jesus Christ. Romans Chapter 3, verses 24 through 26 says that at the cross was where God revealed most fully his justice and his mercy so that he might be both just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, the transfiguration was only a glimpse, more, more of a glimpse than Moses and Elijah had ever had, but still only a glimpse. At the cross was where God showed forth the fullness of his character. Justice and mercy. Grace and righteousness. Power over his enemies. At the cross was where the glory of God was shown. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it would be appropriate to add, through the cross, as Paul's writing this, years after the cross. Listen, the contour of the cross, of the cross that our blinded eyes are open to see here is glory. Ultimate, permanent, nothing greater in all of your life, nothing more awesome in the realm of your human experience kind of glory. Here's what this means for you. A cross-shaped life, a, a gospel-centered life is one in which we never lose the wonder of the cross. 
Rather, the longer we behold the cross, the more we should be astounded and awed and captivated by the cross. Rather than being captivated by the the glory of celebrities, the glory of entertainment, or the false glory of our own achievements, oh man, captivated by the glory of the cross because nowhere else in all of history did God display his glory more brilliantly than at the cross. Do you want to be enraptured by the glory of the cross? If so, then listen to him. Sit yourself daily at the foot of his cross as you open up his word, seeking to behold his glory through the message of the gospel once more. Listen to him, and he has spoken to us. Don't talk. Don't give opinions. Don't move on to your day and just sort of careen through another busy day or busy season. Stop. Listen to him. And just to to give commentary on verses 11 through 13 here, it's further evidence that the disciples weren't weren't listening well, that they they knew that Malachi 4-5 had said that Elijah would come before the Messiah came, and and they just sort of said, we just saw Elijah. Didn't Malachi 4, 5 say that he was supposed to actually come before the Messiah came? Hey, Jesus, what's going on there? And Jesus essentially says in verses 12 and 13, guys, he did come. His name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the coming of Elijah as a forerunner to the Messiah. And you missed him. Listen. Understand. And as poorly as Peter, James, and John had listened and seen, the other nine guys were down the mountain doing their own version of terrible listening and seeing. Which brings us to the second point. Second contour of the cross is faith as the continuous response. To the cross. So look at the shape of the cross taking shape in the Gospel of Mark. We see that the gospel centrality looks like faith as the ultimate and continuous response to the cross. Nine through eleven can be summarized as discipleship failures. I mean, we're, we're, just, we're just getting started here, guys. Ne- next, next passage, it, it seems to get even worse as the disciples respond to, to all of this amazing stuff and they start going, interesting, but who, who's the best among us? Who's going to be first in, in the kingdom of Je- kingdom Jesus? And they continue to just not get it. But, listen, their failures provide us with an opportunity to see the cross of Christ and to, and to see the cross-shaped life more clearly because every discipleship failure provides an opportunity for Jesus to reveal what they're missing. And so just as at Sinai, those who are up on the mountain receiving revelation come down the mountain and they find God's people acting faithlessly. Jesus and the three, they encounter the other nine surrounded by a big crowd and arguing with, at the center of this crowd, the scribes. These religious leaders. Why? Because these disciples had tried to exercise a demon from a small, tortured boy. And they failed. So it created all of this, this hubbub. But Jesus looks at the scribes in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. And he asks them, What are you arguing about with them. He's not so much seeking information that he doesn't know. He knows what's going on in this scenario. He's challenging the scribes. He's saying, why are you arguing with them? Your beef is with me. You talk to me. Come and argue with me. You leave them alone. So what's this argument about? 
But instead of the scribes answering him, the boy's father answers and explains his desperate situation. And he says in verse 21 that his son had been possessed by a demon for years. And as a father of of three little boys, you can just feel the desperation in in his father's voice. He says, says, "I, I, I brought my son. He's been tortured. Possessed by this demon for years who's, who's tried to kill him, throw him into fires, throw him into water. I, I see him grinding his teeth in pain. He just falls down in, in epileptic fits at random. And we've done, been able to do nothing to help him. And so we brought him to you, Jesus, but you weren't here. Your disciples were. And we said, hey, can, can you help us? And they tried. They tried, but they, they couldn't do anything. Nothing's changed. And with weariness, you can just hear it in this passage. Look, look down at verse 19. You can just hear the sigh come from Jesus' chest. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He's speaking of the disciples here. Critique is, is of what? It, it's of their lack of faith. Jesus goes away for, for a little bit and they forget him and try to fulfill their ministry by their own efforts. That they try to live their lives without looking to Jesus by faith. And friends, I want you to just note this. Faithlessness is wearisome to God. Not not that God is ever impatient, not that that God is ever lacking energy or or life. But Scripture often speaks speaks of God with anthropomorphisms, with sort of human characteristics to help us to understand what God is like. As we read the, the Old Testament and you come across this passage, you see and hear out of Psalm 93, which is what Jesus is quoting, the weariness of God in response to our unfaithfulness. Our unfaithfulness is not just water off a, off a duck's back for God. It's not just, you know, I don't care. No, he's like a father guiding his children. And he, when he sees us stray, oh, it grieves him. Oh, he cares deeply about it. He's walking with us and he's for us. And it grieves him when he sees us walk away from him. But Jesus isn't just critiquing the faith of disciples. He's critiquing the faith even of the Father, despite his desperation. Look at verse 22. It says, Demons often cast my son into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can, right after he says, oh, faithless generation, if you can, if you can, (laughs) he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, this isn't saying that if if you believe and and you pray, then then Jesus is going to give you whatever you want. No, no, no. He's saying, there is no limit to what I can do for the one who places their faith in me. There is no limit. In response to your question, if you can, Jesus is saying, I I can. I I can, but you're questioning. You're questioning that. And with tears and desperation, the Father, and you just feel his desperation. He goes, he goes, Jesus, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? Would you help my unbelief? Yes, I'm struggling for faith, but would you help me despite my faith? And friends, though the demon encountering Jesus made one final last-ditch effort to destroy the boy, knowing, knowing who he was encountering, knowing who he was up against, trying to, trying to just put an end to it, though the demon 
put everything he had, Jesus, with a few words, he says, come out, never come back again. And the demon leaves, and the boy seems to be dead, but Jesus gently and compassionately reaches his hand out, grabs him by the hand, and raises him up. Fully healed. Fully restored. And he does, as simply as snapping his fingers, what the disciples failed to do, what they could not do. Listen, that that cry, help my unbelief, Isn't this the cry of every disciple of Christ trying to take up their cross? Isn't this the cry of every one of us trying to to deny ourselves, trying to die die, die to ourselves, trying to, to daily behold the glory of Jesus Christ in the cross, but failing like Jesus' disciples? Doesn't doesn't that cry just resonate with every single one of us? Yeah, I, I, I do I do believe. But there's so much unbelief in me. There's so much failure. There's so much weakness. We're we're, we're like that flaky friend that each of us has who always tries to show up on time for things but never does. Maybe you're that friend. I don't know. But we try. We want to believe. We want to believe more. We want to have unwavering and unfaltering belief. We don't. And so we cry out with his father, help my unbelief. Commentator Alan Cole says that Jesus answers, this is so good, not according to the poverty of the man's faith, but according to the riches of his grace. You see, God's answer to us, if we we have placed our faith in him once, his answer to us on an ongoing basis is not according to how much faith we have in him. Yes, our faithlessness is wearisome, but he does not respond only in proportion to our faith. He responds in proportion to the endlessness of his grace. And at this moment, I want you to think back to Exodus again. If you remember the story, after Moses came down and discovered God's people faithlessly worshiping a golden calf, sheer stupidity, he goes back up the mountain and he does what? What does he do? He intercedes for the people. God is weary with their unfaithfulness and he says, you know what? I'm done. I'm leaving them. I'm not going to go with them anymore. And Moses says, Please, please, don't go. Stay with your people. Let your presence and glory remain with your people. And after he intercedes with God for the people, the Lord remains. This is so significant because here in Mark 9, Jesus could have and should have, by all reasonable expectations, left them in their unbelief and said, Oh, faithless generation, I'm done with you. (laughs) Oh, faithless disciples, you've misunderstood again. This is the fifth time today. I'm done. I'm going home. He could have. He would have reasonably done that. But he didn't because in a few days' time, he would intercede for them on the cross. just as Moses did, but this time in an ultimate way. Moses pointed forward to Jesus. And on the cross, he would say to the Father, put their sins and their unbelief on me and let me pay for it. As only I can pay for it. And he did. And he did. And he interceded for them. And he interceded for you if you have believed in him and took the punishment for your unbelief and your sin so that God's response to your unbelief is not measured in proportion to your faith, but in proportion to the riches of his grace. That's why Jesus can respond so compassionately and so wonderfully and so lovingly because of what he's about to do on the cross. How amazing is that?
just looked forward to his own cross. And on that basis, he gave grace. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. After Peter's confession in Mark 8, which is the, the hinge point of the book, Mark records no more miracles. Because the, the miracles were sort of an indirect answer to who is Jesus, right? They were, they were displays of power that only the Messiah could possess. But Jesus' true identity has now been directly confessed by Peter. So as a reader, we know exactly who he is now, directly. So the purpose of the miracles are no longer necessary. So why is this miracle here? This is the last one, and it's after the confession. Why, why is this miracle here? It's there to reveal to us a contour of the shape of the cross. Look at, look at verses 28 and 29, last two verses of this passage. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And, and, and this kind doesn't speak to probably a species of demon or anything like that. He's saying, this kind of opposition, <laughs> you, you can't oppose that with anything but prayer. The point is the necessity of faith. He says, guys, you, you, you could not drive it out because you weren't actively expressing faith in me. The, the, the disciples had seen the true identity of Jesus. They, they believed in him, but the point of this is that believing in him isn't a one-time affair. You don't believe in Jesus at the moment that, that, that you first express your faith in him, that you first believe and then just move on to self-reliance. No, 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 no. The contour of the cross that we see taking shape here is that of faith in response to the cross marking every moment of the Christian life. That's why, Jesus, that, that's why the question, who is Jesus, is the most important question for every one of life's scenarios because who he is depends on who you're placing your faith in. And the reason that Mark includes this after the confession of Jesus as Messiah is because these are the guys that Jesus would entrust with the true messianic message to establish the church and carry that message on to the end of the age. And Jesus would die. He would rise from the grave. And then he would ascend and he would leave them. So this scenario is here to teach them that, guys, every moment of your life must be marked by continual faith in me. And, and, and my, my provision of grace for you won't be dependent on how much faith you have. My provision of grace will be, will be dependent strictly on the cross and the finished work accomplished there. But, oh gosh, power for the Christian life, power to resist temptation, power, power to, to grow in holiness, power to, to not be deceived by, by the, the untruths that, that are seeping into our minds, power to understand the, the illuminated Word of God by the power of the Spirit, all of that is done by faith. By faith. Faith in Christ isn't something you do when you first believe, only to abandon it for other strategies as you go down the Christian life. Listen, if, if Christian discipleship, and get this, if Christian discipleship is a two-sided coin, on one side, is self-denial, taking up your cross. On the other side is constant, active faith in the glorious, crucified Messiah. Deny self, cling to Christ. And that's why, that's why that teaching on discipleship last week is, is somewhat incomplete. It's not just deny self. It's not just die to self. It's not just take up your cross. Cling to Christ in every moment by faith, constantly. 
So how do we apply this as we close today? Prayer is the active expression of faith for the Christian. So an appropriate application would be pray. But the next two weeks, we're going to take a a quick break from this sermon series in Mark. We're inviting two guest preachers in, Greg Dernberger from South Dakota, and it is way colder up there than it is here, Uh, and then Trey Richardson from Gilbert, Arizona. Wonderful pastors, seasoned Christians who are going to teach us about prayer from God's Word. So the application today, prepare your hearts. Behold the crucified and risen Messiah. Be awed and amazed by His glory. Look to Him at every moment of life by faith and prepare your hearts these next couple weeks to ask the Lord for grace to grow us in this discipline of prayer so that so that the contours of the cross might take shape in our lives as disciples of Christ. Would you pray with me? What, what, what more appropriate way to close this sermon than to pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Grace that's not dependent on the quality or the strength of our faith, though faith is the only way the only way that we can accomplish anything. We are powerless in and of ourselves. We thank you that when Jesus responded in this situation, he looked forward to the work that he would accomplish on the cross. And and even now as we live our lives, we're looking back to the work that he did accomplish completely, fully, and finally. Lord, would we behold your glory Lord, you behold the glory of your Son in the cross and be every day more captivated and enraptured by it as we live lives that are continually shaped by the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.